hit me just the other day before I rolled out of bed one morning. Without you, there would be no sunshine, there would be no rain in the season. Without you, I know that I couldn't walk, couldn't talk, couldn't even breathe. I need you more than I need air, more than I need rain. I need sunshine on a summer day. I need you more than I need a home, more than I need food, more than I need these clothes I'm wearing. Greetings. Thank you for joining us on Christian Reconstruction Radio for this time we shall have together. I'm your host, J.S. Lowther, and this is Sola Scriptura. Promoting the law and the gospel to every living creature with an ardent and firm desire to show the perfection of the law of God in every area of life, all to the glory of God and praise to his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. So this is going to be our first episode and our first podcast with Christian Reconstruction Radio. And I should start out by saying where it is that we stand on certain issues. And so I would describe myself as Reformed soteriologically, presuppositional in my apologetic, and theonomic, or as theonomic as I can be in my worldview and practices. Um, I'm also what most would consider to be Torah observant, so applying that same theonomy to uh, worship as well. So before we get into this first episode, I want to be completely clear Because so often when one speaks fervently about the law of God, the modern knee-jerk reaction is to think that the uh, fervent speaker is attempting to save himself and others by the works of the law. That's pretty much what's been taught to most Christians, and so that is what most people think of when you start promoting the law of God fervently and ardently with a desire to uh, see it enacted, especially with the concepts of reconstruction built into it, that you would uh, support the idea of, of society being rebuilt, reconstructed after the laws of God on a government or social level. So this is, however, not the case with me. I I do not... Uh, believe at all that one can be saved by any work that they commit to. I do not believe or promote salvation can be by the work committed by man in his heart, in his mind, or in his strength. So, you know, regardless of how that is viewed, some people think if they can generate just enough faith, uh, then that's what they need to do to be saved. And others, um, believe that if they can, you know, think the right thoughts or be smart enough to understand something, then they can get the knowledge of salvation. Or perhaps others believe if they can do the right thing with the strength of their body or maybe someone else's strength to do that for them, that then they could be saved, um, making it all derived within man. And so I don't think that there is even a possibility for one to uh, save one's soul from the wrath of God by works that they do of themselves. No, we affirm those simple and unadulterable words that cannot be mixed with nothing. From John 5:21 that says, "For as the Father raises up the dead and quickeneth them or makes them alive, even so the Son Jesus Christ makes alive whom he will." Notice that whom he will. 
Therefore, if one is made alive, if one is quickened, it is by grace that you have been saved. And that grace is understood through faith. And this is, of course, not of our doings. It's not of anyone's doings because it is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so no one can boast and be proud about what they've done to save themselves because we are entirely God's workmanship. We are entirely created in Christ Jesus for the good works that we commit ourselves to, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I'll start with that foundation. I think that that needs to be clearly laid out in this very first episode so that everything I say after that, I can always point someone who may object or think that I'm speaking in terms of some form of salvific work that we need to do for ourselves. I can take them directly right back to this first episode and say, no, I covered that on the very first episode of Sola Scriptura, and uh, you need to go listen to that before you you make your your um, objections to me on that subject. So just for clarity's sake, that needs to be said. As the subject of God's law has been so abused in our modern day by an abandonment of that simple maxim that we just read out of Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10, it's a spiritual law that just simply says and has to be, if you think about it, no matter how logical you want to be, if you take this knowledge back and this understanding back, it has to come from grace through faith unto good work, simply. It has to start with the gift of God in all that it entails through Jesus Christ, faith in him, faith in God, and then that even enables us to do anything good and to do Good works, not just any work that we could call good. These are not things that we can just say, um, hey, that's a really good thing to do. I think I'm going to do that. But if you notice Ephesians 2, it is only by those works which God has beforehand ordained to be good for us to walk in. And those before ordained good works are known as God's law and taught to us by God's law. So law is never to be understood the other way around. That is that good works of any action will lead to grace. You should never understand, and you can't really, uh, just logically when you, you break it down, cannot understand good works or any action leading to a free gift called grace. Because that is a fallacious definition of grace, not being a free gift at all. And Paul clearly tells us in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 4, that to the one who works, that man's wages, his payment, are not counted as a gift, but it is rather what is due him for what he has done. Just like when we go to work, uh, we expect to be paid for our work. Well, if you are working with the intention of being paid in salvation, which you are calling grace, you have effectively undermined the very definition of what grace is. But to the one who does not work, on the other hand, but the one that believes or he has faith in him who justifies the ungodly, who makes righteous the ungodly, that man's faith is counted as righteousness, we are told. And that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise of God rests upon grace, 
The promise of God rests upon his promise to save. That's the promise. It has to rest on grace, on a free gift. Therefore, we assert boldly that while we believe in the law as the good works of God's word for us to walk in, nevertheless, by works of the law, no man can be made righteous in the sight of God or declared to be just in the sight of God by his law, because it is by the law of God that we obtain the knowledge of sin, the knowledge of good and evil. Rather, we proclaim, and what I am proclaiming this day in this very first initial episode, is the same as what you'll find in Romans 3:21, that although the law and the prophets are witness to it, the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law by faith that comes from grace. This is so that the righteousness of God through the faith that is in Jesus Christ, can come unto all those who believe. Because all have sinned. Because all have sinned, this is the only way it can work. Because as a sinner, you fall short of the glory of God. All are in need of being justified by a free gift because God's ways are so much greater than ours and God's glory outshines ours by so much. And his holiness is not even comparable to man's holiness and what man calls holy. That not even the stars, the book of Job tells us, are clean in his sight, let alone man who is born of a woman could be considered holy before God. Therefore, all are justified by a free gift. Therefore, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a pity upon us by his blood, is to be received by faith, which as well comes to us as a gift moving out of that grace that is given. This shows God's righteousness, because in God's divine forbearance, he passes over our former sins. That is the plain teachings out of the book of Romans um, concerning the uh, matter of salvation, concerning the matter of justification and righteousness, and how one could even possibly be considered righteous or justified in the sight of God, and that is on account of the Work that God did by pity, mercy upon us through the blood of Jesus and the righteous, who is the righteous one. Being the righteous one, he has taken that punishment for us. Therefore, God looks upon Christ's people and says, I see you as righteous because my son has covered you with the pity I have sent forward. So that is what we affirm. And that is what needs to be known, it needs to be stated, that salvation is a free gift of God called grace, it moves through faith, and that everything we talk about concerning the law of God is after that. It happens after that situation. It is a focus upon the good works that Christians are to do, that you are already a Christian, not to make you one, but after you have been confirmed to be one and that witness is in you. So... Now that has been affirmed, and I think it's a much-needed thing to start out with, let's dig into our first episode's subject matter entirely. And I think it would be best to kick off this podcast that we are going to focus on with the nuts and bolts of systematic theonomy, which is pretty much what we are going to deal with in every episode, so that we can have a consistent Christian worldview by it. Most listening to Christian Reconstruction Radio, I would think, 
should know that uh, theonomy is the use of two Greek words, theo or theos, meaning God, and nomi, meaning law. And so simply, it just means God's law. That's all theonomy is. Most people who know the work of R.J. Rushdoony or Greg Bonson or someone of that um, school of thought has heard this many times. If you haven't, well, now you know what the meaning of theonomy is. So in discussing a systematic theonomy, what we are doing is we are discussing a system of working order. Okay, A system is a working order by and of God's law. As that interacts with the world God has created for us to live in as Christians. Importantly, it is maintained that which is spoken in Romans 7.14 as we consider the subject of God's law. Romans 7.14 tells us that we know, know the law is spiritual. Just starting right there, all five books of Moses, which we call the Pentateuch, okay, the law of God, the Torah in Hebrew, that law is spiritual. We have to just begin from the very... Um, start that God's law is spiritual. It's nothing less than spiritual. It is not fleshly. A lot of the evangelical teachings and more modern teachings in, in today's Christianity will blasphemously say that the things of God's law, such as even sacrifices and clean and unclean rules of, of uh, procedure and, and all these different things, they're not spiritual. They are fleshly because they do not believe the clear statement of Romans 7.14. That is that the law is spiritual. So where's the problem at? The remaining part of the verse says, we also know that we are carnal, sold under sin. So there is two oppositions that we have there. We have perfect spiritual law on one side, and we have carnal or fleshly mortal sin on the other side. So because we are flesh, we're sold under sin. But on the other hand, we have a spiritual law of God that we have to figure out how it is to apply that as beings made of flesh and being part of this physical world. How do you take that which is heavenly and apply it to that which is earthly? And so those are the ultimate questions that are always going to be discussed in any discussion of theonomy. And so... Since Romans 7.14 brings in the concept of sin, the question obviously should be, if we haven't entertained it already, what is sin? From a biblical definition, from a purely biblical understanding, what is sin? And 1 John 3.4 makes that very plain also. Using all New Testament scripture thus far, sin is the transgression of the law. Okay? Sin is the transgression of the law, 1 John 3.4. Sin is a very interesting word. Sin means a lack of witness. The Greek word for sin, as we would find in the New Testament and in the Greek Septuagint, we would um, see as hey martia. And that is a compound word of the prefix of a with martia, which is to produce a lack of a witness or not having a witness, not having a testimony. This is to be understood that when one sins, when one breaks God's law, they, in a spiritual sense, lose 
the witness or the testimony that they are presupposed to have from the language. By using that way of describing sin, what I'm saying is that it is presupposed that when one sins, he loses something he prior had. He has no witness of himself or something that he should have, maybe another way to say it. And so by calling it by the negative, by having no witness, it's understood that it is supposed that a witness should be had. And so that brings us to the subject of presuppositions and suppositional theology. But from where, then, we can ask, is this supposed to have come from? Where is that witness supposed to have come from? Well, let's go in our Bibles and look at Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. Listen to that. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him, of God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Notice that. They are without an excuse, because that when they knew God, listen to that, when they knew God, supposing all who can see these things, All that can know these things made manifest. All that God has, all these men who God has showed the invisible things by creation to, to be clearly seen. All of those who can see his eternal power, all of those who can see his Godhead are without an excuse. And that is how we know that they have a witness to know God. Because they, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. So the first witness they are lacking is the witness of not glorifying God and not giving God credit for who he is and glorified in his power. And then we're told this also, neither were they thankful, but they became vain, vain or empty in their imaginations. They had wiped it out of their mind. Their foolish hearts was darkened. And so we see foolishness preceding the darkening phase. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And so we see a very normal non-believer. They are suppressing the truth of God in their unrighteousness. We recognize that they can look around and see the beauty of creation. They can see the fascinating workings of the created physical world and know that it did not produce itself by evolution or some other uh, theory, but that God made it. And that we know there's no other answer for that. However, what do they do? Proclaiming themselves to be wise, they become fools in denying what is clearly seen. And so this is where the witness of God that we're speaking about comes from that legislates sin. This is where the witness of God that should be there comes from. And it becomes hamartia. It becomes no witness at all. No testimony at all. God himself revealed it from heaven and manifested it to them, we're told. 
and he shows it unto them insomuch as the invisible things of God's creation are clearly seen in what is created. That is that God's creation is a witness to every man to not worship the invisible God is unrighteousness. Okay, unrighteousness is another word to be focused on. Righteousness or just justice and justification and all these words are related words. It simply means it's just not right. It's not right to deny what is obvious. It is not honest to deny the witness that creation bears in and of itself. It is not just to do so. And therefore, it deserves the wrath of God, as it was plainly said in the book of Romans. Even to those who do not believe the Bible, they have enough information available to them from the time they are born into this created world as a witness to them to condemn them as unjust or unrighteous in their imagination. So many people do not believe that, however. So many people think that God drops people off in the world with no witness at all. They're blank slates. They have absolutely nothing to deal with. But that's not true. They have the ability to see, to hear, to touch, to even taste, and to smell the magnificent creations of God, wherein the invisible God made the visible world or the tangible world, the sensible world around them, so that they are without excuse. And so the denial of the invisible creator, God, is the first sin or loss of witness one may unquestionably be punished for by the wrath of God. Unquestionably, this is the truth. And so in all ways, the foundation of any systematic theology pretty much hinges on these points. And especially in theonomy, it's found in God's revelation. They all hinge upon the, the revelation of God and the understanding of his Godhead and power. That this alone creates its own case for why God's word is able to demand a witness of every man to believe in the Godhead and to live a life devoted to the Creator by faith and to faith as an affirmed witness, a true witness of this revelation. Therefore, a man is called to be thankful. He is called to thank God for his seeing and knowing this. We can even recognize that because we know there are those who are not thankful. We know there are those who cannot see this and who do not comprehend it and who do not witness to it. Though they are suppressing the truth of God in their unrighteousness, we know that there are some who can see and those who cannot. There are some who are dead in their sins and trespasses, and there, there are those who are made alive, and therefore we are called to thankfulness to God. And that thankfulness is demonstrated by what we call repentance. What we call repentance. Repentance is an interesting word because it again is a word that calls us to try to inquire as to its meaning altogether. Repentance comes from metanoio. And it literally means meta to change noio, thinking. Okay? It literally means to change 
one's thinking. It literally means to change one's thinking. And so whenever we think about thankfulness to God, it begins by repentance or a mind change that moves itself away from sin to give up one's foolish life contrary to this revelation that we have perceived just in the simplicity of the creation where God reveals it to us and to present our life as living sacrifices entirely devoted to God, knowing that a life devoted to the one who made all things and made him and a begging for forgiveness of God's um, wrath, to, for God, to, to beg God to forgive um, our sin. Because unrighteousness is a witness or a testimony of faith given by God. That is, by devoting ourselves to the one who made all things and begging for forgiveness, for God to forgive us, for our unrighteousness is among the first witnesses to restore the witness or the sin that we had lost. The witness we had lost or the sin. The testimony of our faith is found in that first act of repentance. And so in terms of repentance, when we look at the Bible and we see in Mark 1, 14 and 15, that John the Baptist and Jesus both were preaching the gospel or the good news of the kingdom of God and saying that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe the gospel. We know that that revelation that is being put out there is going to require a spiritual awakening. That is, while a person has the ability to look at the created world and perceive God, that there is a revelation in faith that must occur. And as we have already discussed first, that revelation comes by a gift of grace. A gift of grace. God opens the eyes. God gives the faith or the belief for a person to believe the gospel. And so those are among the first things that are going to take place in a believer's life. And so in terms of repentance or a mind change, among one of those first great and pressing questions that a believer will have is going to be, what is good? What is good for me to do in offering my life to the God who saves me by his son, Jesus Christ? And so thankfully, we have not only the visible creation to look at, which testifies of God and his Godhead, but furthermore, for those who have truly heard that voice of this one invisible God by faith, they will also hear the call of the Holy Spirit to their heart to believe in Jesus Christ in a triune work. That is, three operating hearts for one required outcome. And that is mainly that the Father gives a believer to the Son, and then the Holy Spirit seals the heart by faith in the work of what this three have done in one act of salvation. Within that work of the Holy Spirit, that 
speaks to a believer, that works on a believer, that calls the heart by faith, they also are able to hear the call of the Holy Scriptures. If one does not hear the call of the Holy Scriptures as the Word of God, then they are not hearing the voice of the God of the Bible. It's just a truism. And the Holy Scriptures are plainly told to us out of 2 Timothy 3 that they are able to make one wise unto salvation, but not in and of themselves. The Word of God in and of itself is not able to make one wise unto salvation, except it be through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And we're going to explain why that is. One who has repented by the revelation of faith also repents by the revelation of the word of God. There is never going to be an action that is done one without the other. In other words, one will never have the revelation of faith that will not bring them to the word of God to be instructed in their righteousness and in their life, to be, in, to be taught what it is that they should do with their life and what they should believe is true. And so, in very uh, plain terms, this is what we call sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone. It is uh, among one of the five great reformed principles that uh, we have uh, to use to judge all things. It's a very plain and simple principle. That is that the God who speaks to you about creation will also reveal to you by his word what it is he has done in words that you can understand and ways that you can understand. And he will also give the faith to believe that word so that you can apply it and do it and make it part of your life so that you can become the man of his desire, so that you can become who it is that you are called to be in Christ as that workmanship. So when we speak about this word of God, this call of God that speaks to us from the Bible, from the scriptures, we speak of it in two parts, but it's in a unified calling also. And that is by the law and by the gospel. By the law and by the gospel. Okay, the law is the total basis for what the knowledge of good and evil is and has been that way since the very beginning. Actually, it has been so since eternity. In the gospel, as the good news of God's authority and power, his lordship or sovereignty, we call it, over all, is that in both time and space, he is Lord and he declares what happens. It is this gospel or this good news that proclaims that God who knows our unrighteousness, he, he looks into the inner parts of our heart, mind, soul, and all that we are, he knows our unrighteousness, that that God by his lordship is also able to declare us righteous by his free sovereign choice to look at Jesus's righteousness instead of ours. Because if he looked at our righteousness and judged us by that alone, Without the imputation that comes by faith of Jesus' righteousness, we would, know, we would in no way be able to be declared righteous, even if it is that we've recognized the power of the Godhead um, and all of his creation to glorify and be thankful to him. The way by which we are to be thankful to him 
is to acknowledge what he has done for us entirely and to debase ourselves and to devoid ourselves of the ability to save ourselves and the ability to choose our own path to walk on despite God's word. And so what God's word and God's revelation tells us is that from the very beginning and from the time this thinking entered into the mind of man in the time of Adam in the garden, that from that time, death entered into the world. And that's bad news because we judged God rather than God judge us. It became our desire, our fallen desire, our depraved desire to desire Godhead, to desire to be God, which Genesis chapter 3 plainly tells us about how that happened. And so in God's wisdom and in his greatness and in his mercy, he provided a way that he had promised from that same chapter in Genesis 3, the very first book of the law, Genesis chapter 3, he tells us that there would come the seed of the woman, the virgin birth, that would bring about the one who would crush the head of the serpent. The serpent, of course, being the representation of the covetousness and the desire that we had to be our own gods and to create our own good and evil. And so in that attempt that was made in the garden to have the knowledge of good and evil all to ourselves and to be gods all for ourselves, we fell from grace, entirely fallen from grace. And so there needs to be good news or gospel proclaimed to us to change all of that thinking. That's repentance. To change all of that thinking. And that as we recognize God as creator and father, as we recognize God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ promised from the very beginning in the seed of the woman, the virgin birth, that that is the faith every believer had from the foundation of the world and that is the faith that we have to have as well. That is the faith that we have to look at and focus on and trust that God will crush the head of the covetous desire that came by the serpent. Okay? And that is found in the cross. That full redemption, that full payment for all that we have done is found in the cross. And so if you think about it, it is by revelation only that man is able to put his focus and belief on such a small part of a document as ancient as the book of Genesis and focus on that and say, we believe that the mother of life will bring forth the seed that will crush the head of, Sa of Satan, crush the head of the serpent, thereby liberating us from the covetous desire that we have to be our own gods and to create our own good and evil. And so, very much so, in discussing the law of God, we must discuss the gospel. Very much so, in discussing the gospel's effect, the good news and its effect upon us, we have to also discuss the law of God that we are to live by. And so I'm going to ask a question in the last half of this episode here that I want to um, discuss, to talk about, and to make absolutely um, plain as to what this effect of repentance and recognizing God's Godhead and his power and his authority, his sovereignty, and his ability to command his creation to obey his word. I'm going to ask this question. 
How far do you believe the gospel is good news? How far do you believe the gospel is good news? Now, I'm presuming you already believe the gospel and that you're already ready to repent knowing the kingdom is at hand, according to what we read in Mark 1, 14 through 15. And so here's what I'm asking. Do you think that the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom as Jesus and John the Baptist and the apostles proclaimed it to be, as a kingdom, with Jesus Christ as its anointed king, and as Lord Sovereign, is good. Do you think that that is good, in the, in the purest sense of the term good? Do you think that that would be a good kingdom to be ruled by? Do you really want that kingdom to be a reality? And as we are taught to pray in, in what most people call the Lord's Prayer, that we are to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so very much, whatever that good news is of the kingdom, and whatever that kingdom represents, in the Lord's Prayer, we are to be praying that that kingdom comes and that God's will is done on earth as it is done in heaven. Does that sound good? Many people today, even of the conservative perspective of so-called Christianity, find the morality of God's law, the Pentateuch, the five books of the Bible, the Torah, the morality of Moses' law, which is in fact God's law, because it is God's inspired spiritual word, they find God's spiritual law odious. Some would even say they find it repugnant, though they claim that they are Christians and Bible believers. And so while they may say that Jesus' good news and gospel, on the other hand, is attractive and alluring, they believe that God's law, as it was given to Moses, is repugnant and odious, and not for the modern day, and in no way able to be trusted, no way able to be lived out. Some would even go as far as to say it's even sinful, which is a complete contradiction in terms. But what is commonly ignored, or just simply not known due to poor Bible knowledge, is that Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. John 1, 1 through 14 tells us plainly that Jesus Christ is the Word of God. He was the Word with God and who was God, and that Word was made flesh, making him the voice of every law Moses was told to write down, making Jesus Christ finger the finger of God that wrote down every word of the law, every word of the Torah. The point I'm driving at is that Jesus' gospel of the kingdom brings with it a kingdom law. A kingdom simply is a compound word of king and dom. It means king's dominion. And the king in focus is Jesus Christ, the son of God, of the seed of David, both the root and the offspring of David, according to Revelation. So, there's no doubt that this king has 
dominion over his kingdom. And that the king in focus is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But in our modern context of time and culture, to say that there is a legislative morality or a code of conduct uh, to live by is just not what people want to hear. They don't want to hear that the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, has any code to live by, has any law to live by. So often that's what you're going to find in today's modern understandings of what the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is. It's not a kingdom at all. It has no law. It's an anarchy in most people's opinions. And so by asserting that there is a gospel of a kingdom and that a kingdom is ruled by a king and a king is known by his law, oftentimes turns away the attention of many who say Jesus is Lord. They're no longer interested in Jesus' lordship if he's also a lawgiver. They're not interested in Jesus as a king if his kingdom must be governed by law and order. The Jesus many want is a Jesus of freedom. You might want to say that as the gospel of freedom, not of kingdom. That is, free dominion is the meaning of freedom, not of a king's dominion. The idea of good news of free dominion is to do as one pleases with the security of everlasting life underneath of you. That is oftentimes what the gospel many want, and they want to admit to they have, while they take up terms in their mouth, such as the covenant that they base this upon. They base their eternal life on legal terms called covenant. But is that what the scripture teaches us about the nature of the gospel, that it is a freedom? It was very plain when we read it that it was a kingdom. So does scripture tell us that freedom from law is the expressed purpose in agreement of Jesus' covenant with his believers. Let me ask that again. Does Scripture tell us that freedom from law is the expressed purpose and agreement of Jesus' covenant with his believers? Or do we find Scripture affirming a covenant of law, rather? In truth, to the legal mind and anyone paying attention to the language here, the question is silly on its face. Every covenant is an act of law. And we all know that, unless we just use terms without contemplating their meaning at all. Thus, the use of covenant is in fact a use of the nature of law. Law, which is predicated upon one keeping one's word or keeping one's promise. One keeping an oath which they have pledged to perform is a covenant. This language centers around the nature of what is good and what is true. In the very desire to uphold a covenant agreement is the desire to do what is true, and to do what is true is to do what is good. Or, to expect another to uphold their end of the covenant is supposed by you also that they are going to do what is true and they are going to do what is good. It immediately brings into the subject of discussion 
good versus evil, one who breaks their word, one who upholds their word. To even appeal to a covenant is to appeal to a sense of law. And so anyone claiming to be a New Testament or a New Covenant Christian and denying law is not only silly and ridiculous, but it's an oxymoron. When you appeal to a covenant and you appeal to the sense of law behind the covenant and the equity or justice that that which was being spoken of in the covenant will also be performed, it is absolutely a part of law. Thus, any assertion of a God-ordained covenant, any assertion of a God-ordained covenant is the nexus or the doorway to admitting God indeed has a law and that he upholds his own law and that the law upholds the word of God and the word of God upholds the law and the covenant and that they are all true and that God will do so perfectly because it is the good thing The true thing to do is to fulfill one's word. There's no way getting around that covenant and law are part of the same system. And there's no way getting around that this is an appeal to objective truth and good and objective good by a standard, which brings us to law. An admission that no such covenant exists with you, on the other hand, If one would say, well, then, if that's my only two options, I don't believe such a covenant exists. That is then an admission on its face that you have no part in a covenant with God, whereby he will truly perform that which he has promised. And that is because he has not promised it to you. And so to take the way out that would say, well, if that's the case, if I have to believe in law in order to believe in covenant, then I won't believe in covenant at all and I will try to put that outside of my mind, then you admit that you have no part in the covenant and that God has no covenant with you. And if he has no covenant with you, he is not bound to do anything for you. Get the point? However, for those who believe they have a covenant with God, and that covenant is based in the faithfulness of God to perform his own word, which he has spoken, we then plainly appeal to the truth of God's word as a faithful word, as a true word. Our concern then is what has God promised to do according to the word of his covenant. Our concern then is what has God promised to do according to the word of his covenant. That we may ascribe those promises to what is our part according to the terms of the covenant, whereby we may say that is the good news of the kingdom as it is fulfilled in us and as it is fulfilled in God's part. And so by us plainly appealing to the truth of God's word, knowing God is faithful and true, we become concerned with God's promise and then we become concerned with our promise, God's side and our side. And while God's covenant is entirely a unilateral covenant, meaning that he will do the work and he will bring it to pass, there is a part in that covenant whereby we desire to do what we can and to do what God would have us do. Though the covenant of Christ's blood is expressly stated to be a covenant of law, many people just simply don't want to hear it. And because many people don't want to hear it, it has caused them to ignore the actual 
terms of what we call the new covenant, which is the covenant of Christ. The covenant of Christ or the new covenant is said to be written upon the heart and mind, expressly accomplished in the time Matthew 26, 28 says, this is my blood of the new covenant. This is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so Christ tells us the exact time when his manifestation occurred that this was the blood, the consecration of the covenant. However, this was nevertheless a new covenant proclaimed and believed by faith ever since Genesis 3.15 when God promised that he was going to send one born of the woman to crush the covetousness and desire represented in the serpent. As its accomplishment and absolute security was founded in the faithfulness of God to redeem those he would redeem, this covenant was as good as done since the foundation of the world. It made redemption an accomplished work by faith since the time of the fall available. The new covenant, as we understand it in terms of, the, of theology, was the integral part of all law, of Moses' greatest commandment of the law, even. And so, no matter where you look in Scripture, we have to look at the um, promise that was made the covenant that was made as already accomplished because God cannot lie. He swears by none greater than himself. He swears only by himself, and he will fulfill that which he has promised. He will accomplish the word that has come out of his mouth. It will not return to him void. And so because of that, when God promises a, a thing since the foundation of the world, it is as good as done I, even before it has happened. And so we can boldly say that from the very beginning, from the very fall, faith was made available in the promise God laid forth because he would fulfill that which he had promised. Absolutely done. And so we often find the new covenant terminology all throughout the law. The New Covenant was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah some 600 or so years before Christ. And you can find it written in Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34 specifically. And it says this, This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts, and I will write my law in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, or know Yahweh. For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The very idea of Christians having a heart and mind covenanted towards God's law, his Torah, and the knowledge of the Lord God Yahweh, right beside and directly corresponding to the forgiveness of iniquity and God's forgetting of their sin, their lack of witness, is an absolutely needful thing since the time of the fall. 
And so it is no wonder that whenever we read the greatest commandment, as our Lord spoke of it, found in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, as it was written by Moses, which says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one Yahweh, and thou shalt love Yahweh thy God with all of thine heart, and with all of thy soul, and with all of thy might. We also find the same exact um, sentiments of a law written on the heart, or a law that comes from the heart in love, in Deuteronomy 36, in Psalm 37, 31, and Psalm 40, verse 8, which is used in the book of Hebrews to expressly declare, that is, that David said, I delight to do thy will, O God, yea, thy law is within my heart. Insomuch as David says, thy law is within my heart, in the book of Hebrews, we're told that is the place where the old covenant is taken away from the flesh and the new covenant is written upon the heart of a believer. That that is where the old falls away, fades away, and vanishes away and where the new law upon the heart replaces it. Where the old heart of stone is taken out and the new heart of flesh is put there to be lived in this world according to the will of God. The very idea of Christians having a heart and mind covenanted towards God's law is the nature of the new covenant made in Christ's blood right beside the forgiveness of sin and iniquity and the knowing, the knowing of Yahweh, the knowing of God. This is the total impact of the gospel as it's proclaimed to be at hand here on earth and directly corresponds to what is in heaven. And what is in heaven is the God, the Father Almighty, with his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, at his eternal right hand, making atonement and reconciliation constantly for his elect covenant members mentioned in that new covenant. When Jesus came to earth, he said in John 3, he came down from heaven. And when Jesus ascended, he ascended to the place that he was before the world was. Therefore, we may boldly and confidently proclaim that the new covenant law of God as that which was, is, and shall be is that which is yesterday, today, and forever. In the word made flesh in the man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But how say we that the covenant from the beginning of the ages is a new covenant then? How could we possibly say that there is a new covenant if it has been since the beginning? Wouldn't that make the new old and the old new? Isn't that a confusion? How can that which was from the beginning be new? That's a good question. The Apostle John says in 1 John 2, verse 7, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. Notice carefully where it says, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. No different 
is the commandments of the law upon the heart and mind by the covenant of Christ, by the new covenant, which has been heard from the beginning, is the covenant that places the law on the covenanted. That is, that this truth is truth now, though it has been. This truth is truth to us now, though it has always been. It's new to us now, true to us now, and it is new to us now as truth. This is that the light is light because the darkness has passed from us. The true light now shines in the appearing of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to us, and it applies to us. It now applies to us. This is new to us and renewed every morning because of God's great faithfulness. Not because of our faith or our faithfulness to God, but because of his mercy to our iniquities and to our sins. That is, that he will mediate afresh by one constant and consistent covenant made before ages ever were and accomplished, in fact, in time in the work of the cross of Jesus Christ, wherein Jesus Christ bore the sin and the iniquity which God is presently and in the past forgetting and forgiving according to the terms of this covenant which we call new. For us, this is the truth. For us, this is the light. For us, this is the foundation wherein we build the law of God. And so the gospel, the good news is certainly good because a covenant member is by the mediation of Jesus' blood empowered to serve the Lord with gladness. He is empowered to enter into his gates with thanksgiving in his heart, contrary to what we read in um, his human nature in Romans chapter 1. He enters his gates with thanksgiving now, thankfulness in his heart, and he enters into his courts with praise to the Father, so that here on this earth he may worship and give thanks by obeying the gospel of the kingdom as it is found in God's holy law, and not be offended by this solid rock to build upon. This is the Christian's reasonable or logical service if he is forgiven of iniquity, this is the Christian's reasonable and logical service to no longer live each day in lawlessness or in wicked works straightly condemned by God's mouth and by his word, and to live in those things which God has proclaimed to be good. And thus the answer to what is a good work has already, which has already been expressed is those good works which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. In Ephesians 2.10. That that is the whole purpose of why God gave us grace through faith. That we can be a workmanship made for good works. That we can do good things that God has before ordained are good. And has declared them and preserved them in the scriptures that we may live by. Those good works preserved in scripture are the laws of God's kingdom. They are the laws of Jesus' kingdom. They were before ordained for those who God would save from death to walk in. No other people will joy in a society on earth shaped after God's morality. 
and no other people will joy in the word of God as it's expressed in his law on any level. Because a new covenant recipient is a man after God's own heart. He is made by his born-again heart and mind the workmanship of God to love God's word, which is true from the beginning. Because every one of God's righteous judgments are eternal, according to Psalm 119.160. This is what we call our sanctification. That is our holy living. As Jesus clearly says in John 17.17, 17, Sanctify them, Father, through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so if we desire to know what that truth is, if we believe God will be true to the terms of his covenant, then we also have to understand that that truth is entirely bound in every word God has spoken, that those words are all true and righteous altogether. Lord Jesus' people are a sanctified people who are sanctified by the word of God. That is that they are made holy and pure by a standard that was before ordained to be holy ever since the beginning. A righteousness that is everlasting and a righteousness that shall never pass away, declared by the word of God. Many people imagine that in the everlasting kingdom, in the kingdom to come, we often hear it, or somewhere up in heaven, that there will be singing and there will be clouds to float on. Maybe there will be angels and perhaps there will be some bright lights, saints of old to chat with, and perhaps even some good food on a large banqueting table is imagined and, and drawn in, in uh, illustrative um, style. But did you know or have you ever considered that the kingdom to come will have those in it who are in this kingdom on earth? For sure. That that's something that has already been confirmed to us, that that kingdom that will come will have in it those who are already in the kingdom that is on earth. And that if a soul abhors the holiness of God as it's expressed in his law, which is applied to his kingdom, he will abhor God's holiness in the kingdom that will come. If we abhor the idea of God's law of holiness and righteousness that's everlasting, being applied to earth, we will abhor the holiness of God's law in the kingdom that is to come. And more so in the kingdom that is to come because the kingdom that comes will be perfectly imbued with God's eternal and holy word. It'll be chocked full of his eternal and everlasting righteousness, so much so that not even a small amount of it will be able to penetrate the walls of that blessed holy city. In fact, those who will inherit the kingdom are lawful men and women who do not live in the flesh, but in the spirit of God's law. Regardless of what pleasures we would like to imagine in the kingdom that is to come, in the heavenly state, there are a few facts that the inspired apostles and prophets tell us of which we can be absolutely sure of. Let's read a few of them. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the Apostle Paul tells us, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor idolaters, 
nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So regardless of what other aspects will be in the kingdom of God to be inherited that we may imagine fancifully as we want to think about pleasure and delicacy, there is some things that are absolutely certain from Paul's text. These unrighteous persons that we just read about will not be in the inherited kingdom of God. Those who practice these listed unlawful acts that are not even a small breakdown of what the meaning of these words are, but are just the broadest form of the use of the words. Those who practice these unlawful acts and have never repented from them by the Spirit of our Lord will not be in the kingdom of God and of his Christ. They will absolutely not be there. And so if that doesn't sound good to you, then perhaps the gospel is not the gospel that you would like to hear. Because the gospel the Bible teaches of us of is a kingdom gospel. It is the gospel of the kingdom. It is the gospel of a king's dominion and a king that has a law. As a matter of more revealed fact, Revelation 22, 11 through 15 says this, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according to his works. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without, for without that city are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whatsoever loveth to make a lie. And so here is the real question. Is this good news to you? That that is all on the outside of God's kingdom? If it's not, you may be looking for another kingdom. If it's not, you may be looking for another gospel. If it's not, you may be seeking after another Jesus. Because the biblical Jesus, the biblical gospel, and the kingdom are established by the word of God. They're established by the revelation of God, by the word of God, by the rule of God's law. It is in fact a kingdom with Jesus Christ as its head. And this earth is just waiting to be full of its glory. Thank you for joining us for this first episode of Sola Scriptura. I hope that this has helped um, make plain what perspective we're going to be talking from. I hope that this has helped maybe with some of your understanding. And then again, maybe everyone listening has already contemplated most of these things in one way or the other. And so in our next messages, we will not just be looking at how to build on a foundation of systematic theonomy, but we will start to apply systematic theonomy as we look at some of the things going on in the world and we look at some of the scriptures that deal with those problems in the world and how it is that we could reconstruct the world to be a better place and to, in fact, be a reflection as best as man could possibly build 
to the glory of God in this earth.